Well, it is good to be here one last time to share the gospel with you. And, uh, and do y'all mind if we stay a while? Is that cool? Uh, I can't guarantee I'll get through this quickly. Uh, so if y'all just get comfortable, if you need, there are cushions over this way. Uh, you're welcome to grab one. Uh, and that'll be great. I'm going to get my timer out here so I can stay faithful to timing here. Uh, wow. This is something. I'll tell you what, I was singing uh, Crown of Many Crowns and I could barely get through it. So, uh, so Lord have mercy on us. Well, this is my last Sunday here with you, Rivermont EPC. And I'd have to say it has been a true joy to serve this church. Uh, and for this last sermon, I could uh, do a lot of bragging. I could brag about a lot of things, all that God has accomplished. I could come in here and I could brag about our just joyful, fun, competent staff team, our collaborative staff team that God has gifted this church with. I could talk about the pastors, the administrative staff, everyone above, and how we, we work so well together. I could come here and I could boast about the eight Sunday schools that are equipping people in the Word of God and doing great work for God's kingdom. I could commend our faithful 20-somethings who, like Timothy says, they're young, they're the next generation, and yet they are in speech and conduct and love, faith and purity, setting the example. I could celebrate our regular men who join us every Tuesday morning at 6.30 for Bible study, fellowship, and prayer. I could come in here and I can applaud our behind-the-scene team that you never see because they're way behind that wall running the sound and running our live stream. They played a very, they play every week a background role, but during COVID, folks, they carried us through that season. And I'm so grateful for every one of them. I could boast about a lot of things, and, and this wouldn't be without biblical model. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, 21 this. Have you heard this? Whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? Get this. I am a better one. (laughs) I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. And on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in danger from my own people, in danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, and often without food and cold and exposure." Now, this has not been my experience at Rivermont EPC, and I'm grateful. I haven't had to experience all of these various dangers, but I can also relate with this statement. And apart from other things, there's a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? You see, I relate with Paul and the daily pressure and anxieties for the church, and I think a lot of pastors do. We're concerned about you because we love you. We long that you would continue in faithfulness to God, that you would trust the Lord who has saved you, who keeps you, who sends you, that you would go forward in life and carry on to the end. And oftentimes for us pastors, it means we're a little anxious. We're eager, 
but also anxious. And as I head out, I too feel that eagerness and anxiousness. But Paul here is not truly bragging. He's actually mocking the Corinthians in some ways. He's mocking them for their prideful bragging. And he's telling them, this is how you ought to boast rightly. In other words, he's kind of getting in the ring with them and doing what they do, saying, don't do what I'm doing. You see, the Corinthians were filled with rival factions. I follow Apollos. Do you follow Apollos? Do you listen to his teaching? Are you on his side or are you on the Paul side? Do you follow Paul? There are these rivalries happening. This culture was an achievement culture. The city of Corinth was uh, knocked out a couple years before, destroyed and rebuilt as a strong economy, a very strong country. We also see that this is a commendation culture where letters of commendation were written to prove that people were eloquent and adequate to teach. And it was a bit of a critical culture. Uh, Paul numerous times was criticized saying, oh, you're real strong in your letters, but in person, you're quite weak and can't put words together. You see, Paul is seeking to take this self-centered people and build them to become God-centered in their boast. And as you continue in ministry through Rivermont EPC, I want to encourage you to boast in the Lord while building disciples. Let's hear this now in the Word of God in 2 Corinthians. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 2 Corinthians 10. Uh, We'll begin at verse 12 and carry on to verse 18. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits. But will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others. But our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged. So that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Let's pray. O gracious God, we pray to you. We pray that you would come in power and might. We pray that you would open our eyes to see the beauty and glory of your work, Jesus Christ, our Savior, to transform us by his grace and to move us and compel us by his spirit that we would become more like you and live to your glory all through Jesus, our Savior. Amen. We may have heard this said on YouTube or some of you in person or on the TV. It's a phrase that echoes throughout sports. I am the greatest. This was the motto of Muhammad Ali. This man could float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. Awesome. He probably had the quickest punch and the loudest mouth in the ring. Boxing at this time was really a test of manhood. The heavyweight champion of the world was the toughest man around. And Ali sought to be not only the greatest, but the toughest of them all. He boasted with humor. In one interview, he said this, I have wrestled with an alligator. I done tussled with a whale. I done handcuffed lightning and thrown thunder in jail. That's bad. 
Only last week, I murdered a rock, injured a stone, hospitalized a brick. I'm so mean, I make medicine sick. And you know, he had a lot to show for himself. He was a gold medalist at the Olympics. He was a three times heavyweight champion, which means three times declared toughest of them all. Ali was named the fighter of the year five times by Ring Magazine, sportsman of the century by Sports Illustrated, and sporting personality of the century by the BBC. And he had another phrase he would say often, and that is this, it ain't bragging if I can back it up. But you know, the reality is he didn't win every fight. He was weak in his own way. The Lord alone is the only one that is truly great. And as our call to worship says, declare God's glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. Why? For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Therefore, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. You see, we boast in the Lord because he backs it up. The Lord himself fulfills what he promises. He finishes what he starts and he works powerfully even in weak people. So we boast in the Lord and build disciples for his glory. So let us see in Paul's letter what we are to boast about and how we are to build. The first thing I want us to look at is the fact that we boast in God's work of discipleship. Here we see in 2 Corinthians 10, 14-15, that Paul is boasting in the Lord for God's impact in the Corinthians' life. But what did Paul do in Corinth? Look at verse 14. He says, we're not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We see the first thing here that if we are going to boast in the work of discipleship and God's work, how do we build? We build by introducing people to the faith. In Acts 18, we see Paul's missionary journey to Corinth. And we see that Paul partnered with Aquila and Priscilla working in tent making as he was telling others the good news of Christ. Now, this is really encouraging because that means the rest of you tent makers that aren't pastors can have a significant ministry in God's kingdom. After facing persecution from the Jews, Paul heard a motivating promise from God. Here's what the Lord said. Do not be afraid. Go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you or harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. You see, God promised that he would be with them. And God promised that he had an elect people that will be reached by the gospel, that will respond in faith. And if we will introduce people to the faith, we must know that God is with us. And brothers and sisters, we must abide with God. Our communion with God compels us to communicate with others. So we must know the God who is with us and for us. Now think about this in general, right? If you're introducing someone to another, typically it's because you spent time with them. You've gotten to know them. You so enjoy their presence that you have to share them with others. And this has to happen if we are going to introduce others to the faith. We must be sometimes reintroduced to the goodness and beauty and glory of Christ. We must enjoy Him and seek Him and love Him 
and respond to His steadfast love. And because God has a chosen people out there that will receive the message, we go with boldness, knowing it's going to work because God is at work. So they reason and they persuade in the synagogues and house to house regarding the gospel. We must introduce people to the great worth of Christ. You see, whenever we introduce someone to another, we often make a connection. Oh, you're going to love this person because he plays bass. And I, I look forward to soon, next week, one of my pastoral visits is going to be a, a bass uh, playing time with Brayden, uh, another one that I baptized over the years. And so, like, I would say, Brayden, you would really love this guy because, you know, he plays bass like you play bass, and you should continue playing bass. Now, sometimes we say, this person loves to cook. You love to cook, you'll love them. This person's a great golfer. You're going to love them. And so we connect their interest and passion to the person we want to introduce them to. But unfortunately, many non-Christians do not believe Christ is worthwhile because they don't see his great worth. Many believe that Christ and Christianity are not worth even giving a second thought. They see Christianity as a roadblock to their destination rather than an on-ramp. And you can't even get to the work of Christ because they don't care about the worth of Christ. And so if we will do this introducing of others to the faith, we have to declare to them the great worth of Christ. Because in the flesh... They think that a relationship with God is more like spoiling their life rather than seasoning their life. So we must help them see that Christ is the fulfillment of all of our longings. That even our deepest impulses for love and justice and joy and peace, all of these find their fulfillment in Jesus. He is the reality. Paul introduces the Corinthians to the greater worth of Christ in 1 Corinthians 1, 22-23. He says, look, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. He's a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Do you see what Paul's doing here? He's connecting the Gentile longing for wisdom to the greater worth of the wisdom of Christ, who is uniting all things in himself. He connects to the Jewish longing for power and overcoming and victory to the greater power of Christ who overcomes the power of death, sin, and misery through the cross. You see, if we will introduce people to faith, we must show them why Christ is worthwhile by declaring his great worth, which satisfies their great longing. We preach Christ crucified, the answer to their deepest longings, fears, desires, and the framework to make sense of the world. We must also introduce people to the work of Christ. Now, this shouldn't come as a mystery. We've got to tell them what Jesus did, right? We can't just say, he's going to you know, give you great fulfillment and joy, and he is the, the one for whom you were made. Well, what did Jesus do? And this is true for whenever we introduce anyone to anyone, right? You introduce someone, what's the, one of the first questions that comes out? Well, what do you do? So we need to tell people, what did Jesus do? And Paul says that we are the first to come to people with the gospel of Christ. So he's saying that we came with the gospel of Christ, telling us about the work of Christ. So what was that work? Well, we see in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, the clearest explanation. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. And so we need to tell people that we're introducing to the faith that Jesus has finished the work of your salvation. He lived, died, and rose to give you life. And if you are here this morning and you have not yet embraced Christianity, you need to know this, 
that Christianity is about the work of God to save, not your work to show that you're worthy to be saved. Now, Paul did not uh, just do this. He told him about the work of Christ, but he also shared about the effect of that work. You see, when we introduce someone, we want to know what impact they've had in our life. Again, this is part of the introduction. This person has had a profound impact on my life. What impact does Christ have on those who embrace his work? Well, Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, Such sinners were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. And so we need to introduce people to the faith. But we don't then just leave them. We walk with them. How many of you, when you gave birth to a child, wives, no husband ever gave birth to a child, so when the wife gave birth to a child, how many of you just at that point said, wow, that was a great accomplishment. Let's go home and you can stay here. No, we embrace this child. We bring them in. We don't just leave them alone by themselves, but we care for them. We nurture them. They, they take like a whole two years to be able to really be in standing, right? And so we do this work. We don't just leave those that we love deeply who bring into the faith, who we introduce the faith, but we walk with them. And here's what Robert Coleman says. He says, the only hope for this world is for laborers to go to them with the gospel of salvation. And listen to this. And having won them to the Savior, not to leave them, but to work with them faithfully, patiently, and folks, sometimes painstakingly, until they become fruitful Christians, savoring the world about them with the Redeemer's love. And so we need to introduce them to the faith, but we also need to work with them to increase their faith. We see that in this text. Paul says that ultimately he didn't just boast about them coming to faith, but his hope was that as their faith increases, his area of influence would greatly increase also. And so Paul's eyes was on the increasing faith of those he introduced to the faith. Now it's interesting, isn't it, that he doesn't say increase faithfulness. He says faith. Why faith? Why does their faith need to be increased? Aren't there other big things, important things to do? Don't you need to be obedient and follow the rules? This is absolutely true. But the reality is, if we seek to increase faithfulness without building faith, then we will create moralistic, legalistic people who know nothing of their Savior or His present help and their need. You see, we measure fruitfulness by growing faith in God that fertilizes faithfulness. And so if we're going to see people become more faithful, we don't do so by just bullying them into obedience, but by increasing their faith. Here's how this looks practically. If someone's struggling deeply with sin, besetting sin, constant sin, addiction, and struggle and hardships, what they don't need is to say, stop sinning and work yourself right. They don't need that. What do they need to hear? God is a God profound in mercy. And though your sin is great, His mercy is greater. He will forgive you all of your sin. And His grace will train you up and build you up and empower you in your weakness to grow. And they will grow in faithfulness in their struggle. To grow in faithfulness in suffering, we don't need to simply say, well, your tears don't matter, your pain is irrelevant, just get up and move on. No, they need to know that God weeps with them in their suffering. That God is present and compassionate with them and that he has a plan to put it right and to change this world to the way it was meant to be. For us to grow in faithfulness and outreach, I don't need to come in here and beat you up and say, get out there and do evangelism. 
I need to tell you that God loves this world. Do you realize he loves this world so much that he sent Jesus to die for you and the world? Go in God's love for the world and share the gospel. You see, this is our hope for ongoing discipleship, is that we would increase the faith of those that came here. And this morning we saw a family that has come to faith. Brian and Z, my dear friends and family. And they are going to need support and help and love. And what they needed most early on in their walk with the Lord is to know that God is with them right now in their suffering. He is faithful. And my hope is that there will be many more that come to faith in Jesus through your labor of love. And what will you do next? Tell them of their faithful God and help them grow. Well, that's my longest point. But I do want us to think about applying this. We need to share the gospel generally. We need to learn to do this. And we have resources at this church to help you with that. We need to also learn to share the gospel particularly with the particular longings and desires of those that we're reaching. And as we disciple people, we need to intentionally develop them and help them increase their faith. We have a ministry we started here called the Foundation Sunday School, which seeks to build foundations in new believers' lives. I want to encourage you, if you want to connect to that, reach out to Jennifer at jennifer at rivermont.org. She'd be glad to help connect you to that ministry. But we need to do this work one-to-one and as a church, walk with those that come to faith here in this church. Shortly, we need to boast in God's work of expansion. Here's the really neat thing that happens when we go on mission. You see, Paul says in verse 13, we will not boast beyond limits in the labors of others, but regard the area of influence God assigned to us. And Paul's talking about this area directly given to him right before him. But Paul's also talking about this influence way beyond him and the nations. Because what does Paul say? As your faith increases, we will preach the gospel where? And lands beyond you. In the book of Acts, we're reminded that the scope of our mission begins at home. We are to, by the power of the Spirit, preach the gospel here in Jerusalem. And then go out to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And this means that if we are going to do the work of building disciples as we boast in the Lord, we must reach the people right before us. Those that are in our families, for parents, those that are in your neighborhood, for people that live around others, those in your work, where we live, work, and play. We need to reach those that God has assigned to each of us. And notice, he doesn't say to the pastors. (laughs) He says to each of us, everyone's in this work. We reach out where we live, work, and play. And we do not have to travel to new places per se, but we need to transform the way we see the people in front of us. That this is your mission field. These are your people that God has given. We need to begin thinking like a missionary in our present context and think about the barriers to belief and how we can engage those right before us. But the exciting thing is, when we reach people right before us, the Lord will reach people way beyond us. You see, Paul's desire is to see the gospel preached among all peoples in every place. The assumption here is not that Paul is going to go to these other lands, but that in his work of discipleship, building up the few, they will go out to the nations for the glory of the gospel. And this is my prayer for this community, that as you go and share the gospel with those in front of you, the Lord will bring a ripple effect, an echo effect of the gospel that will reach the ends of the earth. That the gospel will reach into new people and new places all throughout Lynchburg and the world. We need to make a priority to reach our nation, for sure. But we also need to see that God uses 
the influence of the gospel to reach the far ends of the earth. And this was a really neat thing that I got to see in South Africa when I was on staff with Campus Outreach. I led a cross-cultural project there, and I was doing a missions team there and building up laborers to be sent out in the harvest field. And as I was down there, it was really neat because in Africa, all of these different places throughout Africa, different nations, send their brightest and best to South Africa to be trained up, to go to university, and then to be leaders in their tribes throughout uh, the continent of Africa. And so our work there in that place quite literally reached to lands beyond South Africa. But folks, this is not just global missions. This is right here in Lynchburg. The Lord can reach you and the people around you to reach the nations. And so how do we apply this? Well, the first question is, what is your area of influence? Who has God assigned to you to love, to care for, to walk with painstakingly? Where do you live? Who are your neighbors? Where do you work and do the significant work of God's kingdom in that workplace? Where do you play? Do you work out? Do you enjoy playing music? Do you enjoy fill-in-the-blank soccer? Whatever it is, find a place where you can engage people. And how can you keep the whole world in your focus? Folks, we're not just wanting to see Lynchburg reach the gospel, but the whole wide world. And so I want to encourage you to check out the Joshua Project or Stratus.Earth or Operation World, something that will stir your affections for the glory of God going to the nations. Last of all, and very quickly, we want to boast in God's work of approval. If you look at verse 17, Paul carries on and he says, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. You see, this work of evangelism and discipleship is hard work. And many of you might be saying, oh, great, Pastor, that's easy for you to say. Go ahead, go to Georgia, do that fun stuff, all right? We're just kind of calm and comfortable here. We don't want to get about this work. This is for the pastors to do, right? And maybe some of you are feeling just really crippled by your struggle with sin, and you don't know how you'll be used for God's kingdom. This is where it's really encouraging to know that the Lord commends and calls you based on Jesus' work and not your work. Here in this section, we see Paul quoting Jeremiah 9.24. And this verse demonstrates two different approaches to life. We can boast in ourselves and our self-commendation, or we can boast in the Lord or his work. We can look to man's approval or God's approval. We can seek to commend ourselves. And if we do this by man's approval, it's really just going to create prideful competition where we make this all about us, us spreading our message and getting as many people so we can be looked at great. And it's a great competition, us versus them. How many people have you shared the gospel with? Have you shared with this person or that person? We create competition when we do this. But Jeremiah 9.24 says, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, nor the strong man boast of his might, nor the rich man boast of his riches. You see, these three are the building blocks of self-confidence. We can easily boast in our wisdom, our ability to discern what we know is best. We can think we're know-it-alls and we can do it all ourselves. We can easily boast in our physical abilities and strength. We can say, I am really persuasive. I've got strong acumen with words and I can get anyone into the kingdom. And truly our wisdom and our strength will likely build financial prosperity. And so we can boast like Nebuchadnezzar and say, look at all that I built. My kingdom, my houses, my wealth, my, 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 my. But brothers and sisters, we are not to classify or compare ourselves with others. We're not seeking to measure ourselves by one another. But our approval is not what we've achieved, but what Christ has achieved and freely given to us. Paul gives the final reason we should boast in the Lord. 
Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Paul declares that the one whom the Lord commends is approved because Jesus lived the perfect life we failed to live to give us his perfect record. Jesus took all of our sin and misery on the cross to die and to bury it there. And Jesus rose again, promising us new life. And so you already have been approved. So get at the work of building disciples. God has accepted you in Christ and sends you on his mission. I faced this wrestle of approval personally recently while I was being examined at the PCA down south. Down deep south in Georgia, I think is what was was told to me once. I've been examined once here, and I went through that process before. But this time I did it again. And I crammed so much back in my head, and I reiterated all the things I learned. And then I went straight before the committee to prove that I know my stuff. Then they asked me, what are the Ten Commandments? That's an easy question, right? Can anyone quote the Ten Commandments here? Well, hopefully our pastors can. But this pastor, before that committee, had so many other facts, so many other things in my head, ready to talk about the extra Calvinisticum and to outline Romans and everything else. I forgot the Ten Commandments. Now, I got, a, I got most of them, and they got them all there, but they were way out of order. And, and I was thinking to myself, I was like, man, I'm in. Like, this has got to be like an instant no, right? You mess the Ten Commandments up, you're out. <clears throat> and, you know, some of you have forgotten the Ten Commandments. Not in your head, but also in your life. And you are right now buried under profound weights of sin. And you think you've disqualified yourself for a relationship with God. And you've especially disqualified yourself to do ministry and have an impact in this world. And this is where I want to remind you of the grace of the gospel. That the Lord Jesus Christ came to save sinners, folks. And there is not anyone in this room that isn't one. And there's not anyone in this room that has sinned too far that God's grace couldn't forgive you and fill you and send you on his mission. And so there's grace for you too and for me. Well, as we carry forward in this mission here, we need to admit our weaknesses. We need to admit that we aren't approved or worthy for this mission. We're not worthy for relationship with God. We are uh, mess ups and we need God's grace and his help. We must give thanks for all the progress of God's work in our life and his mission in the world. And we need to build teams and do this together collaboratively as we share the gospel and build disciples. And as you continue here at Rivermont EPC, many times you'll feel very weak and you'll feel defeated and not cut out for the mission of God. Instead of speaking the bombastic confidence like Muhammad Ali, your speech might sound more like Moses. Oh, my Lord. I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Instead of chanting, I am the greatest, maybe your chant will sound more like Gideon's chant. Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And when these fears settle in, keep reading the 2 Corinthians 12.9, where you'll remember that he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, For my power is made perfect in weakness. The Lord who is with Moses' weak mouth and taught him what he should speak will give you the words to say. And the Lord who is with Gideon who said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. When he was hiding in the bushes, 
that God will be with you, O mighty man, O mighty woman. And so Rivermont, Rivermont, go with confidence in my absence. Continue the work of God's kingdom and building disciples that will reach the ends of the earth. Boast with confidence because we know when we boast in the Lord, he will back it up. The Lord will show himself faithful to you for generations to come. And so boast in the Lord while building disciples to his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your mighty and great work in this church. We pray, O Lord, for this next phase of ministry in this church. You will continue the good work that you have continued for generations. As this church anticipates a hundred years in this building, in this neighborhood, O God, would you bring a hundredfold fruit in the coming years in this church? Would you do it through the weakness of these people? Would you grant them the boldness and the confidence of the gospel? And would you compel them by your love to go throughout this city with the declaration of your gospel to the ends of the earth through Jesus our Savior? Amen.